Hey, it's Brian, and this is a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode. What does that mean, you ask? That means we have taken an old episode and popped it back up to the top of the feed with a new intro. That's really what it means. But why do we do that? Well, it's typically because something is happening in pop culture that makes it relevant to pop this old episode back up. And in today's case, it is the release of the Boz Lerman film entitled Elvis, about Elvis. Yeah, of course, you do a show about rock and roll, Elvis is going to come up a few times in the first 100 episodes, but he really hasn't come up as much as you might think. Um, He does show up in a few different episodes. We recently did one about Carl Perkins in which he showed up, of course. But back in November of 2021, we dropped an episode, episode 67, called Elvis versus the Television. And that's the one we've reloaded for you here today. So if you want to get back in an Elvis state of mind for the movie this weekend, this is an easy way to do it. Of course, we also just did an episode on Colonel Tom Parker that posted on Wednesday uh, in June of 2022. So you can check that out as well. They make a nice double feature. Get all of this in your head before you head to the multiplex to see Boz Lerman's Elvis. And I'm sure you'll hear us talk about that film on the show at some point. But now, let's do it. It's a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold. This is episode 67, originally from November of 2021. And it is called Elvis versus The Television. Lance wrote the show. Check this out. Hello, guys. Love the show. Always ready for your next episode, which is a very nice thing to say. Lance a lot. Thanks. That's the nicest <laughs> thing anyone said to me today. Uh, have you guys ever looked into the stories of Elvis shooting out televisions? Oh, man, damn it. Do you know what's the most disappointing thing as a little boy? What? When I, when I went to that house. Graceland? Yeah, you walked in and you were like, there's green shag carpets and mirrors, and we don't get to go upstairs? What the f***? Even <laughs> <laughs> as a little kid, you're like, really? We just paid. It's like we go down and we look at all the gold records. And then that was before they had like an entertainment complex. But even like it felt like a, it was a really nice home, but it was dated with the 70s like it was stuck in time somewhere oh you know? yeah i mean it, yeah. it ended in the 70s man like wait what do you want him to do update it for the 80s and 90s so you can walk through it that wouldn't be genuine you don't want that well, I'm, I'm i'm just saying I, i've been in there a couple times and it's it's always it, both times it was just really underwhelming like you know and i want to go upstairs right lance you've jumped us right to where i wanted to start which is your love of elvis i know he has a special place in his heart and you want to know why i know that i know that because i have full text message threads about your love of elvis uh pulling back the curtain a little here this is pretty standard stuff for our friendship uh murdoch and i text threads about things like elvis but i actually searched elvis on my phone in my text threads and found Long text threads where you, me and you talking about Elvis and you telling me stories about Elvis. So I don't know. I, we've, I think we've never tackled it on the show because it's a little overwhelming. Like there's so much Elvis to talk about. So I appreciate Lance yeah. narrowing the focus to wild firearm usage. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the story about my mom seeing Elvis pick up the girl next door? from uh, when she was a- did, What? No. So, so, my, so my mom... Grew up next door to a man whose name was Buford Ellington, and Buford Ellington became the governor of Tennessee for yeah, like yeah, yeah, 12 yeah. years. Yeah. 
And so Ellington Parkway and all, all that's who that guy is. So my grandfather became friends with him and he worked on his political campaign. Totally true stuff. But anyway, so Elvis came one time apparently to pick up Buford Ellington's daughter on a date with the car and like showed up and pulled up in frickin' Verona, Tennessee to pick up the scale and gave her a ring, my mom said, I think. What point of Elvis' career was this? Was this early? Was this 50s? Yeah, because you have to think my mom graduated high school in 57. Okay. Okay. What's amazing about Elvis is Elvis is the first person in like sort of like modern pop culture that was overwhelmed with fame. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of this story. And it is just reading about it and doing the research, Murdoch, like it's amazing stuff. And we're not, we won't spend a ton of time on it, but I think that's such important context. And I'm glad you pointed it out. He gets so famous and, when you get that famous, you have to do some stuff. You have to surround yourself with people, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about all that. But first, let me talk about my entrance to Elvis. I was trying to remember because you and I grew up in very different households, as as we have discussed on the show before. Um, in his letter, Lance actually mentions he says, "P.S. Brian." Uh, I totally relate to your issues with trying to uh, listen to rock music in a super religious conservative household. My wife is a preacher's kid, and I myself got called out by my wife's dad, the preacher, for bringing up the word Elvis at the dinner table, which is hilarious. Uh, if we if we were to use that as a frame of reference, though, I would say I was not allowed to bring up Elvis at the dinner table, uh, you know, theoretically. You might have prayed to Elvis at the dinner table. Yeah. I mean, I could have had a velvet Elvis painting in, in our house. I sat in the car and listened to Elvis with my dad. I mean, uh, so I listened to him too. I think, and I was. This is what I was trying to figure out. And I think it comes back to the Time Life collections. We talk about these all the time, man. And I, I wish Time Life would support the show uh, because they. I, I owe a debt of gratitude to Time Life, and uh, they should pay me for for all of the free plugs. But fifties era stuff for me. Prior to Elvis, I learned about through those Time Life comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm not going to lie to you. I sat in a used CD store the other day looking at buying out piece swaths of the collection that actually goes before the 1950 collection. So the the This Is Your Life collection that's like 45 and the War Years and like all of those. And I put them back. But I almost bought them. But anyway, anyway. So it's the, the, the disease is still... Real and ravaging my body. Uh, but, um, a, a couple couple things I remember. I think I heard Heartbreak Hotel on one of those. Like, really heard it. And then, also, this flags my age, but UB40's version of Can't Help Falling in Love is a big touch point. Ugh, it, piece it, of garbage. It made a lot of mixtapes when I was 10, man. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I remember my dad explaining that that song was by Elvis. Like, I sort of remember that happening. Have you ever seen a video or seen Ingrid Michaelson start playing that song? Yeah, yeah, Ingrid People Michaelson. Like, Whew, love her. Like, like you know, it's like, I've seen a video before where she starts to play it, and there's an audible gasp yeah. from the audience. Well, what's your favorite Elvis song? Um... I really do like um, 
can't help falling in love with you. Okay. Of course. But I do I do like as a whole, as a as sort of a bigger thing, I like the sixty eight comeback special. Okay. Which is unproduced. And like they have that entire box set you can get or whatever. Like it's you know, it's well, just it, Mike here's Groom. the thing. Here's the thing. I'd always heard that phrase, the sixty eight comeback special. And I didn't really realize what that meant until I deep dove on this research about his how his career was so weird. Like he just got to your point, he got so famous. And then he did a bunch of stuff that made people sort of get like past him, like sort of like, ugh, this Elvis guy, he did, he's everywhere. He did 25 films in like a few years. This this com, you know, this guy who could have went <laughs> couldn't leave the country, Colonel Tom Parker signed him up to do all these movies. His manager it was the movies. It 20, was the movies. And and uh, 25% was his cut. Yeah. So that, that's and so he so he didn't take Elvis overseas because yeah there was I think he there was a concern about him with a warrant with yeah, uh, with the yeah, arrest yeah. but the, but yeah so the the thing about the 68 comeback special that's remarkable I even read about it like right before because I, I was so excited about like listening to the box set that I, I read this piece and they they suited up that s- sexy ass man in that black leather outfit and he was standing backstage, and whoever was right there, he turned to me and goes, I'm not going out there. I can't go out there. And he was like full-on stage fright with that outfit on and was totally freaked out and was installed and stalled for a little bit. And and I think it like physically like made him, like he was uncomfortable. But he went out and did that show. And then if you watch it, Someone hands him like a Gibson 335 or some big hollow body guitar. And it's like, oh, he he actually knows how to he can kind of play guitar. And that was never apparent. Like, you know, you just see him just kind of strumming, you know, on Ed Sullivan or whatever in the the 50s or whatever. But when I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm going to pick the guitar back up. And that happened about two years ago. I was like, oh, that's awesome. If Elvis can can do the we're going up we're going down and i was like oh my gosh <laughs> up down well i mean you know in in the 50s and 60s we weren't talking about performers mental health right there was no vocabulary yeah. for that and and you know looking back at the tragedy that really is elvis at the end and we'll talk about this a little bit um you know there's so much that now we look back in retrospect and it's like could have been done right like there could have been a lot of interventions at a lot of different times yeah. But but we'll get to all that. We're going to go way back. We're going to go to the beginning and sort of talk about the beginning of Elvis. And, and then we'll get to the, the useless, reckless uh, firearm usage in a moment. But I, I do want to say... This is so exciting. Okay. Since we're talking about favorite songs, Suspicious Minds is my favorite. Oh, oh, yes. But... I was trying to record that for you and send it to you oh earlier. Oh, my God. I, I love Suspicious that. Minds. I oh, also... Yeah, forgot I have yeah. another one though from the Vegas years, which I know you're, we're not supposed to have stuff from the Vegas years that we love, but oh my God, I love the wonder of you. <laughs> when no one else can understand me. <laughs> when everything I do is wrong. 
Man, I'm telling you, dude, there's nothing better than that big flourish into the wonder of you, man. And I remember hearing that and just being like, oh, this is Elvis, too. And like, I understand that this is like the Elvis that we're supposed to be like, oh, okay, this is washed up Elvis, I guess. But like, but I'm into it. Yeah. And that was and that was uh, uh, when you think about the song and, and the words the thing was is that he he had a pick like you know, he didn't write songs glenn campbell like had a record of all the songs he wrote for elvis i've listened to it's super awesome i mean he got to pick all the, any song he wanted to and that song is a fantastic yeah, yeah. Oh. the wonder of you is something that people don't use it's like that's not part of the lexicon of saying that you love someone at all it's it is a is as bombastic as the beginning of the song. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. It is so bombastic. Okay, let's let's go to the very beginning. Tupelo, Mississippi. He's born in 1935. He moves to Memphis in 48, and that's where we know him from, right? Even more than Tupelo. And, and he's making music by 1954 when he's 19. Um, of course, we're a couple of old radio guys, so we have to mention the importance of a old radio guy. You want to fill in the details on Mr. Phillips? Yeah, uh, Sam, Sam Phillips, uh, Sun Studios. L- listen, everybody. Um, you know, once you feel comfortable getting in the car, if you can get to Memphis, Tennessee, and you want to do music stuff there, there's the Stax Museum and the, uh, the Civil Rights Museum is there. there. There's a whole bunch of things um, that you can do there, but. You also can walk in to what is sort of is left of Sun Studios. You walk in, and there's a record store, uh, and they play stuff really loud. And I went there on a Sunday, and they played There'll Be Peace in the Valley at, at the volume you would listen to, like, Ace of Spades. <laughs> Motorhead. It was like when it came on, they turned it up. It was like they turned, and then they all sang it. It was weird. And then you go, and they give you a tour. Um, like about, you know, and they tell you stuff about it and then you go downstairs and then you're in that studio where you can sit and stand on the X and hold a microphone just like he did. And, and Sam was, you know, could, I guess for the most part could have gone like, maybe he was plum crazy. So, I mean, mean, let's talk about what he actually did, right? He opens a recording studio in Memphis and he lets amateurs record, which is a genius business idea because nobody has access. So he gives all these unknown guys this chance to come in. And I mean, major guys who go on to be big deals. The first things they do is they go record at sun howling wolf. Yeah. 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 So two years in, he parlays this into his own label sun records. As you mentioned, they do 226 singles in 16 years. Yeah. But you know what they say about all good men? Uh, they have a better woman with a much better ear manning the studio when they're not there. Uh, Marion Keisker, actually the star of this story, and I love this because that's not a household name. A lot of music nuts know Sam Phillips. They don't know Marion Keisker. Marion Keisker is uh, at the studio when truck-driving Elvis Presley wanders in because he oh. wants to record something special for his mom's birthday. Because he's an amateur and he's going to, this is the special gift. He saved up some money, some extra shifts. He's going to make something cool for mama. Yeah. Yeah. Truck driver. Uh, Marion likes it, keeps the tape, makes Sam listen to it. It, it, Sam doesn't like it very much. Uh, Yeah, okay, he's fine. Doesn't happen immediately for Elvis. January 1954, he makes a record 
Nothing happens. Elvis actually tries out for a vocal group and gets told no. Tries out to be the singer in another band and literally gets told to, quote, stick to truck driving. He was told to stick to truck driving. <laughs> and let me tell you, I, when I, whenever, whenever, I'm an old man now. When I go and talk to like college kids or whatever about whatever, like right at the end, I'll show this thing. I'm like, Michael Jordan has missed more shots than anybody else because he took the shots oh man so you have to you have to go for it on this point i often like to tell folks who say that someone quote unquote can't sing that most modern people don't actually want to listen to people who are good technical singers like we never talk about this but josh groban and susan boyle are amazing technical singers who wants to go who wants to go listen to josh groban and susan boyle right now right um no. I mean, my mom, but like not you, not me, not probably most of the folks listening to this show, right? Rock and pop have never been about good singers. And this right. is just like such a great reminder of that. But right. we should cut through the innuendo because what Sam is looking for, and he, I mean, he basically admits this. You know what Sam is looking for, right? He's looking He's for looking, a white guy that sounds like a black guy. He, yeah, yeah. And and then he uses, he uses songs that are from African-Americans and right. almost covers them. And then that's, you know, that's that. I'm sure some people might have heard heard the music and didn't, hadn't seen him and probably didn't know if he was white or not. For sure. For sure. So in July, Sam brings him back to sing for a session because he's got a couple of ideas and nothing is working. They've got a backing band in the studio. It's a very frustrating session. At the end of it, after they've pretty much given up hope, Elvis picks up a guitar. And he starts playing, and the hired band falls in behind him, and they run tape on this. Three days later, he has a hit on local radio. <laughs> the magic happens. Now, there's, there's not room in this episode to really go down this rabbit hole, but we should acknowledge yeah. that there is, of course, a key player who enters into the picture around this time, and this is the guy you've already brought up, honorary colonel, weirdly, I don't understand any of that. Tom Parker is his given name. Uh, and this fella starts guiding Elvis's career, and he just worms his way into almost every facet. Um, oh, yeah. And once they put Elvis on stage and he starts getting comfortable, that's when the magic really happens. And in 1956, uh, just a year before he shows up at your mom's neighbor's house, uh, he drops that debut album on RCA Records. <laughs> Uh, in the next two years, he becomes huge, huge. And it's like hard for two guys and a couple microphones to explain to the average person the level of celebrity. And yeah. he's he's there's a couple things that do this for him, right? Touring and television. You have to think about the golden era of television. And, and you talked about the work ethic. I mean, he tried out and struck out. He tried out and struck out, Right. Stick to truck driving, right? Amazing. And he and he he kept at it. And so before there was the TVs, you know, when he when he got the TV break, it was over at that point. Like he's a star. He was doing the Louisiana Hayride. Yeah, so he was. Yeah, he was doing he was doing like some circuit stuff too for a little while. So he was he was trying to work. He did three brief tours this year when he sort of starts to take off. And here are some highlights. Villanova students pelted him with eggs in Philadelphia. have no idea why. In Vancouver, wow. the crowd rioted after the end of the show, destroying the stage. Frank Sinatra 
who, let's not forget, used to inspire a little swooning himself, condemned the new musical phenomenon of rock and roll in a magazine article. Have you ever seen this? Here's a, here's a quote from him describing rock and roll. Brutal, ugly, degenerate, and vicious. It fosters yeah. almost totally negative and destructive reactions in young people. It smells phony. It is sung, played, and written, for the most part, by Critness Goons, the rancid-smelling aphrodisiac I deplore. What? Frank Sinatra, roll it back a little bit. Jeez. So did you ever see the clip of the his... It what would be I guess his apology like now would be when you nope. try to get canceled. Oh, what, he they did a he had I think he had a show Frank did yeah and Elvis and Elvis was on it and so they came out and um uh, I'm trying to think what Fra- Frank sang an Elvis song Elvis sang a Frank song and they intertwined it and oh, and, wow. and Elvis I forget what F- Frank sang it was it was really cheesy. <laughs> But like Elvis was singing witchcraft, and like you know he starts singing, and like you know the just the girls all start screaming. <laughs> well, and this is the girl screaming thing's the whole thing, right? And I remember this more with Beatlemania, which comes later, obviously, where you would see them play early, early on when they first got to the states, and it was like this is like what this is so weird because as many shows as we've been to. You and I, like, can you have you ever been to a show where people just like scream so loud you can't hear the band? Like that Once. that's a weird thing. What 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 was it? You're not gonna believe what it was. Um, it was Ani DeFranco. Really? Yeah. What? And I was and I what? and I was like, man, I can't I can't do this, man. Well, I mean, oh, I, I guess you maybe couldn't hear her because she was like strumming no. a ukulele in one corner of the stage. You're saying no, like man. people were screaming so loud? There was, there were like, there were women screaming at her, and and then uh, she, I mean, she plays acoustic guitar like a, a fierce mf'er, man. Um, That's true. She does, and but I, I don't know if just the sound was weird or whatever. But I remember like thinking, like, I can't hear. That's so and weird. That was that was what the problem with the the Beatles um, was. Your story's like the time I almost got in a fight at a Fiona Apple concert, but we'll leave that for another time. I'm sure I've told that story before. Uh, okay, so <laughs> something incredible happens that there's like no modern day equivalent to, which is, I mean, I guess there is a modern day equivalent to this. It just never would happen, which is in 1958, Elvis gets drafted into the army. Yes, that's and, right. And this is just like... Like I've always heard this bandied around. People talk about it, and I—if you ask me, was Elvis in the army? I'd say yes. But think about that. Just think about that for a second. Imagine everything we just described to you—the style of life that you're living—and then, and and also, no social media, no, you know, like twenty-four-seven sort of celebrity coverage, right? None of that exists. So, but you're so famous that people like follow you to the airport to watch you get on an airplane to go (laughs) overseas to Germany. So can you think of a celebrity you trust to be in the army? Like I can't think of anybody that would be like, that guy should go overseas and fight for our country. That I heard that he was introduced to amphetamines while he was in the army. But I was curious. He was a truck driver. Didn't I mean, maybe he would have gotten it before then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's leave him in the army for a moment, and let's go talk 
about somebody else who's important to this story. And he's a guy who <laughs> is can- Canadian. Actually, he's not Canadian. People sort of think of him as Canadian. He's actually American. And he's become recognized to a certain generation of Americans, not so much for his actual work, as for an impression of him that uh, has gotten very, very famous over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Goulet. Hello, I'm Robert Goulet. Goulet. I know one thing we can agree on. When a professional gets his mitts on a song, that's when it really takes off. That, of course, is Will Ferrell doing Robert Goulet on SNL. And I got to say, this is from the clip where he's in the car and he's he's about to do the rap songs. And that clip is in the show notes. But I will tell you, it was a very hard clip to find because NBC is trying to make that clip disappear because he says the N-word in it twice. Um, really? Yeah. And so it's not supposed to exist. And so, like, that's not on YouTube. Like, I had to go to Vimeo. Uh, I had to dig deep. Somebody's got it, like, mislabeled so that it can still exist up there. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So that, that bit does not hold up. But his impression of Goulet is pretty spot on and hilarious. Outside of this, what's your impression of Robert Goulet? Um, this is really what I know him for. Yeah, right? So all things on this show usually trace back to one of two things, Motley Crue or wrestling. Now, <laughs> unfortunately, I could not find a direct connection from Robert Goulet to the crew. I don't think wrestling? I didn't Google it, but I did not find anything. There are a couple of wrestling connections, though. First of all, Goulet was, as I said, born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, even though people think he's Canadian. He moved to Canada uh, when he was uh, in his teenage years, I believe. He was born in 1933, and his dad's name is Joseph Georges André Goulet. Say that three times fast. Goulet! (laughs) Goulet! (laughs) Both, Both of his parents were mill workers, but his dad was an amateur singer and wrestler. Oh, wow. What but a weird. A, a second and more interesting connection to wrestling. Have you ever heard of the French Canadian wrestler Rene Goulet? Yeah, you better believe I have. I totally have forgotten all about this. Is he. Are they related? No. Are they can? No, listen. Folk? No. Dude, <laughs> can folk. Dude was born in Quebec City in 1932. Starts wrestling in fifth. So a year before Robert Rene Goulet. Goulet. Starts, oh starts wrestling in 57 under his birth name, which is Robert Bedard. He adopted the ring name of Rene Goulet because he starts working with these promoters named Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo oh. in Minneapolis. <laughs> and they tell him. Listen, we want to capitalize on the fact that you look good and that there is a famous guy right now who's breaking, which we're going to get to what's happening around this time because it's late 50s, early 60s in Robert Goulet's career. But Robert Goulet started to take off. So they're like, we're going to change your name to Rene Goulet so that you can cash in on his cachet. So that kind of speeds up the punchline, which is in the late 50s and early 60s, Goulet's killing it. Judy Garland described, Judy freaking Garland described Robert Goulet as a living 8x10 glossy. He's a sexy man. Blue bedroom eyes, 
And here's here's how. Okay, you know how you like. Wow. There's the rock wow. and roll legend of people throwing their underwear at a performer. Yeah, that's that's not what they did with Robert Goulet. They threw him their hotel room keys. Oh wow! This was yeah. like a thing. So when Elvis was wearing army fatigues, Goulet was dressing as Sir Lancelot in the Lerner and Low Camelot. And th- this comes after his 1952 run on the on the CBC. So he he goes on he goes on the CBC on this show called Pick the Stars in 52. And then that that's like when you get on a reality show now, right? When they just start moving you around reality shows, they move him around like every show on the, on the CBC. He's on uh, Singing Stars of Tomorrow. He's on Opportunity Knocks. He's on Juliet. And this is my favorite sentence in the whole set of notes for this. Episode. Oh wow! Okay. Yes, he's on the Canadian version of Howdy Doody, in which he starred as Trapper Pierre opposite William Shatner. That sentence is god dang gorgeous. I don't care what you say. Howdy Doody? What? The Canadian version of Howdy Doody. Can you imagine having to explain that to someone? I was on the Canadian version of I'm Robert Goulet. I was on the Canadian version of Howdy Doody. Welcome to the Howdy Doody show, eh? So he goes... <laughs> <laughs> he, he goes to the States and he starts doing summer stock theater. And this is where Lerner and Lowe find him. And this Camelot role makes him a star in the U.S. because he's on stage every night with Richard Burton and Julie Andrews. They're in that cast with him. Wow. Whoa. After the run of Camelot, Goulet appears on the Danny Thomas show. And then he's on the Ed Sullivan show. Goulet. That's <laughs> how household name among American audiences in the 60s. You, you get a, get this. He wins a Grammy Award. Best New Artist, 1962. Oh, wow. And I'm glad that something terrible didn't happen to him, like the Best New Artist curse, except <laughs> what we're going to talk about this, this evening. So, okay, okay. So let's bring it back to Elvis. We have two early 60s superstars, one in rock, one in theater and crooning, both oozing sex appeal. But the question is, <laughs> because you've probably forgotten, the question we got from Lance is, why was Elvis shooting TVs? And so I bring all of this backstory up to tell you that the most popular answer to this inquiry, if you ask around, is the reason Elvis shot TVs is because Robert Goulet's face was on them. <laughs> it's 100% a real thing, dude. Uh, oh, that's amazing. I know, I'd heard that... It's, it was the 70s that he he thought that like Priscilla and Goulet were a thing or something. Which oh, okay, okay, okay. No, okay. Right? So here you go. This is this is why you think that. Okay. If this is possibly true, the question does <laughs> I like become. The first, I like the first reason. <laughs> no, no, no. We're gonna, we're staying there. So if Elvis I just is don't shoot, like your face. If Elvis is shooting the TV because Robert Goulet is on it, why? Why does he hate Robert Goulet? There's a historian and a writer named Lisa Waller Rogers. She has an excellent, though very outdated, online presence, which I highly recommend you spending time on. I mean, she covers all kinds of stuff, but she's got this whole piece on the theories around Elvis's distaste for Goulet. It doesn't make her sound like a super legit historian, but I promise she's great. Okay, uh, check this out in the show notes. Let me let me just give you, though, a few of the theories that she outlines in this piece. All right, this is my favorite, and this is sort of, this is what you're thinking, I think, but it's not Priscilla. Some blame the bad blood on a letter that Elvis received when he was in the army. That's why I had to get us to the army. So he's in Germany, 
from 58 to 60. His At the time, his hometown girlfriend's named Anita Wood. And she was actually performing on a circuit with Buddy Hackett and Robert Goulet. <laughs> This episode, I get to say all the fun names. I'm Um, so glad you got to Buddy Hackett. I know. That's what I'm saying, dude. I watched him as a kid. I want to go back and see like how, like if people are like, we got to cancel Dave Chappelle. It's like, (laughs) dude, they got to erase Buddy Hackett from the planet, (laughs) from all memories. I'm thinking... I'm thinking everything out of his mouth was absolutely awful. The, I can't the, wait. The, the men in black show up, and their only purpose is to erase <laughs> Buddy Hackett from your memory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so she's performing with Buddy Hackett and Robert Goulet, and she makes this mistake of while she's writing him a letter, Robert Goulet like <laughs> appears over her shoulder. Hey, what you doing, baby? Oh, Goulet. And, uh, Goulet. <laughs> Goulet. Yeah, you do it much better than me. I just sound like I'm an Italian guy shouting pizza or something. Um, <laughs> so he writes a postscript at the bottom of her letter to Elvis. And he's, he like takes her letter and he's like, oh, I'm going to write Elvis a little, a little note here. And he writes, like, don't worry about Anita. Robert Goulet is looking after her. So, like, there's this idea that there was this yeah. like, rivalry there, right? And that he was just pissed when he saw that. Another theory is that Elvis was just sort of resentful of Goulet because Goulet was a rival when he gets back. So he's in Germany, and he's you know in the freaking army, and he comes back, and there's this guy who has a totally different approach to music. Like, it's schmaltzy. It's, you know, it's dramatic. It's, it's not rock and roll. In fact, the New York Daily News magazine literally called Goulet at one point, quote, just the man to help stamp out rock and roll. So, wow. maybe it's a professional rivalry, right? Not just a romantic rivalry. A third theory, which is semi-related to that idea of Elvis's indignation that Goulet is busy heart-throbbing it up while he's in the army, does include this overt sense of patriotism. I don't know how we missed this on our wow. Rock and Roll versus the National Anthem episode, but there's a Robert Goulet screwed up the National Anthem story, which I was unaware of. Uh, me too. That night after, I listened to so many bad National Anthems. <laughs> I missed this one. May 25th, 1965, Goulet gets to sing the National Anthem at the Muhammad Ali Sonny Liston heavyweight championship fight. I can't wait. Now... See this. Here's here's what happened. It wasn't that he was terrible. He screwed the lyrics up. I honestly, I think they're a little hard on him about this. He replaced Don's early light with Don's early night, and gave proof through the night to gave proof through the fight. I mean, this is fairly innocuous infractions, in my opinion. I I, I agree. But yeah. people were outraged, and and this actually followed him for most of his career. He was the guy who screwed up the national anthem at the at the heavyweight championship, but in the, there's a version of this story, and I, it's hard to pin down who who claims they were in the room with Elvis. But like when this happens, that Elvis stood up and it was like, <laughs> and yelled at the television, "You learn the words of our national anthem, you son of a bitch," <laughs> and then shot the television set. So I I, I don't I know love, if that's true, but I love I it. love that one so in this version lisa marie presley also asks her father why he chose to shoot the tv (laughs) he responded because he didn't want to stand up and turn it off (laughs) 
Wow. So that I is, that that is that is so fantastic. Imagining all imagining also Elvis saying, "Born in the National Anthem, son of a bitch." That whole thing sounds so funny. I had a cassette one time that's called Elvis's Greatest Shit, and it was something that someone made, but it was all outtakes. So this is like the eighties or nineties, and it had "Can't Help Falling" in, an outtake of "Can't Help Falling in Love with You." It hits the bridge, and he goes flat. And he's like, "Like a river flows, some things are meant." He goes, "Shit." <laughs> shit and he goes goddamn tamale <laughs> do you still have this because i really need to hear it i don't think i do but i'm sure that we could get it okay so here these are all good stories but they also sound fake like i don't believe that lisa marie presley asked him what to, why he shot the tv and it was just like a normal conversation oh i don't want to turn it off um, but <laughs> what what does Goulet think, right? Like, there's there's the perspective I want. Is this is a big enough story? Like, I'm telling you, if you put Elvis and Goulet in Google, like this is hit number one. Like, this is a thing. And so Goulet knew about it. So what did he think? He did an interview in '04 where he said this. Uh, when he shot the television set, you think he was shooting at me? He also shot 50 other people's faces. They told me that he had about 100 sets in the basement, and he'd just go shoot those things. Okay, wait, what? <laughs> we have now escalated this situation from one time Elvis shot one TV to Elvis had a basement full of televisions in Graceland that he would... like. Let me ask you this. On the tour in Graceland, did you see a basement of TVs? <laughs> I, you know why I wanted to go upstairs? I saw pictures of what it looked like up there, and I saw those TVs, and I remember it being like, how does someone have three TVs in the wall? It's so cool. Now, there are things that I read that actually back this up, that he like just randomly shot at TVs. Kevin Kern is a spokesman for the museum across the street from Graceland, and they have the television, or if you believe any of this, one of the televisions that Elvis shot out. And he says, this guy, Kevin Kern, says it was just Elvis firing off rounds for no reason, that he just would shoot at TVs. Quote, there was nothing Elvis had against Robert Goulet. They were friends. Elvis just shot out things on a random basis. That's a quote from this guy. And there's evidence that Elvis regularly went on shooting sprees. This Lisa Waller Rogers piece puts it like this. These shootings were common occurrences. Elvis had a stockpile of weapons and liked to shoot things. He once shot his car when it wouldn't start shot up small appliances, and on occasion, large appliances. <laughs> Refrigerators? And, I don't know. And then one day, showed up uh, at the White House and asked to be deputized. If that is the case, and he's just run, randomly running around shooting things, I think there's an important player that we've not yet introduced and considered in this tale called drugs. And my personal conjecture is that power has something to do with this. So this goes back to what you started with, right? Which was like, dude... You can't understand how famous Elvis got and how sort of relatively fast it happened once it started to roll. And that's true. And if you get that famous, you start to insulate yourself with people who are telling you yes all the time. And we know Elvis did that. So do you want to talk about the Memphis Mafia? Oh, man. It's so fascinating that he had this gang of pals. I mean, they were pals. And then there's a there's a Juan, there's an ending with a couple of them oh. who at the very end wrote wrote a book. Dude, dude. And okay, 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 stop. So there you go. Yeah. Stop. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. <laughs> so 
I mean, just if, if you don't know anything about the Memphis Mafia, very quickly, it's a nickname that was given by the media to a group of Elvis's friends, right? Associates, employees, cousins, and, and, and they were there to accompany him. They were there to protect him. They were there to serve him. And this sort of, I mean, it pretty much goes for his whole career, 54 to 77. So for 20 years, and people come in and out. But they're doing things like practical things like bodyguarding and tour logistics and scheduling. But it's also pretty clear that they were getting him drugs and getting him girls and buying his cars and all that sort of stuff, too. And there's also a lot of speculation that these guys were supplying him his drugs and hid the drug problem from the media. That was like became part of their job was like, don't let anybody know that this is going on. There's a lot you can talk about with Dr. Nick. But I remember as a kid seeing this thing and wondering why Elvis was staying in a hospital and why they had aluminum foil over the windows. Like the windows were completely covered. And now it's like, it's like, Oh, well they probably don't want anyone to see in. Yeah. We, we don't have time to go too deep here, but you've already pushed us to what happens at the end, which is the story of red and sunny West red, yeah. red and sunny are cousins. And they're like at the core of the mafia for most of its existence. They'd both been actors, and Red actually goes on to be in Roadhouse. Fun fact. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, he so yeah. was Roadhouse. Um, but Peter Griffin's favorite movie. These guys get sort of thrust into the spotlight because at a certain point, Elvis's dad as the Elvis empire is starting to collapse. And we've alluded to some of this and that, I mean, there's too much of it to go into in this episode, but basically Elvis just starts to come unglued and they're running out of money. And Vernon fires red and sunny with basically no severance and no time to talk to Elvis. He's just like, you're out now. Red and sunny are pissed, but so is Elvis because his dad's making this decision. And so, you know, I don't know what you would do in that situation, but what Red and Sonny do is hire a tabloid writer and write a book. It's called Elvis What Happened, right? Yep. And and these dudes will go on to maintain that Elvis What Happened was basically an attempt to save Elvis's life. Yeah. They thought if all the details of his prescription drug addiction got public, then he would get his act together. And this would, like, shock him into seeking medical care. That didn't happen. Within a couple of weeks of the publication of this book... Elvis dies. I bring all this up to set the scene for the final story about Elvis and his firearms. It takes place during this personal chaos period. Do you remember the actress, songwriter, and former Miss Tennessee, Linda Thompson? I sure do, man. Do you know how big of a fan I am of Elvis? (laughs) That's like his other girlfriend. She goes on to marry Caitlyn Jenner and David Foster later. Yes. But she dated Elvis. She dated Elvis during these days. And she tells this story. So we're in Vegas days here. The presidential suite. And Elvis is lying on the sofa. And in those days, in Vegas, they had these advertisements with huge bullseyes on them. And he had one of these enormous bullseyes things in the suite. And he decided that he would just shoot at it for a target. Because it was like kind of a cardboard cutout of his name with the bullseye. So Elvis pulled out his gun and shot at the bullseye and the bullet goes through the wall and then through the toilet paper holder, which was metal out through a mirrored door and shattered it. And I was standing at the sink and I heard the ting, 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 ting of glass breaking. And I felt the air behind my leg. And when I looked down, there was a bullet hole in the door behind me. 
I opened that door and there was another shattered glass door and a bullet lying there. And I knew exactly what was happening. Uh, James Coffley came in and said, Linda, are you okay? And I said, yeah, but what the was that? And he said, that was just Elvis having a little target practice. Yeah. My personal assessment of this whole thing, you know, to, to really answer Lance's question is yes, there was a period where Elvis was shooting things. I'm not convinced he was shooting at Robert Goulet's face. I think it's a great story, and I think maybe huh. once he shot at a TV after he shot at a lot of other TVs because he saw Robert Goulet and he was like, oh, hate that guy, and he shot the TV for fun. But I don't think he was just like running around shooting TVs with Robert Goulet's face on it, which certain versions of this story sort of intend you to think that at the end. What really happened is stress and drugs and fame and chaos and insulation make you do crazy things, man. And, you know, try to be sensitive somewhat on this show. As funny as a lot of this is, like, it really was a catastrophe at the end. He, yeah, he died alone, too. So that's, that's the, the sad part about him. And, you know, if that's what the Beatles would say. We had each other. We would, uh, there was no way that we, you know. And they knew that, too. He was just a dude hanging out by himself. I'm glad we got to do an Elvis episode. If you've got a a story you want to hear us uh, dig into, we're happy to do it. We are the story guys at gmail.com. And thanks for Lance for that letter. That was uh, excellent. And we hope we did it justice uh, for you. Thanks, Lance. What should people be doing until next time, Murdoch? Goulet. Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.